0: All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 15. Tonight, we're going to look at Revelation 15 and 16. We're going to do both of these chapters because they they kind of go, not kind of go together, they do go together. And chapter 15 is pretty short. It's only uh, 10, 9 or 10 verses, 8 or 9 verses. So um, we won't be here all night. But as we look at... 15 and 16. So we've said these past few chapters, we've kind of been in this uh, parentheses where we've kind of been taken out of the timeline of how everything is going. So we had the the introduction of the scroll that no one could open except for Christ. We had the breaking of the seven seals. We had the blowing of the seven trumpets. And then after that seventh trumpet, we kind of Step back and kind of took that heavenly perspective, that heavenly look to see uh, from heaven's perspective what all was going on uh, during this time. So now we're kind of pulling back out of that and we're getting back kind of into this timeline and what we have are these seven bowls of God's wrath about to be poured out on the world as we get closer to the final battle between uh, the serpent and the beast and the false prophet and their armies against Christ. So in chapter 15, we're going to see kind of Getting ready for these bowls, getting ready for these bowls to be poured out. And as they're getting ready, we have this scene in heaven where, where God is being praised because of this victory. And so we have one of those moments again where we kind of have um, this kind of bittersweet action or this bittersweet activity. We've got the, the sweetness in the fact that this is victory. Uh, we know that we are getting to the end where God uh, basically uh, gets vengeance on all those who have been martyred. All All those who have been killed, he destroys his enemies. He's about to set up the the millennial reign of Christ. He's about to uh, create that new heaven, that new earth. And while at the same time, it's bitter because we understand, and we'll see this in chapter 16, that as God's wrath is being poured out on those who have rejected Him, they continue to harden their hearts, and they continue to reject God, not repent, and fight against Him. And so it's this moment where, yes, we rejoice because of what we see, the victory we know that is coming, but we're also saddened by the fact that we understand that there's a large portion of this world that has rejected and will continue to reject Christ even when He is showing them His absolute power. So let's start off. Let's just read chapter 15. It's only a few verses. We'll read it. Then we'll kind of work our way through it. Then we'll go back over to chapter 16. It says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a glass, uh, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Remember, that was the 666 we saw a couple of chapters ago. Standing beside the sea of the glass with harps of God in their hands. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever." And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we study Your Word tonight, God, that You would give us a greater understanding of who You are and the victory that we have in You, while at the same time, God, burdening our hearts for those who don't know You. Father God, let us rejoice in the things that we can rejoice in. Father God, let us... Let us mourn, God, for the things that we need to mourn for, for those who have rejected you. And, Father God, let this spur us on, Father God, to seeing others come to know you, that they might know your victory instead of your defeat. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished." Now, when it tells us that the wrath of God is finished, that does not mean that this is about to um, that God's wrath no longer exists. Because we know that uh, once these are poured out, He still has to pour out His wrath, or His justice, or His judgment on the the serpent, on the false prophet, and on the false uh, uh, on the the Antichrist, the beast. But what this is saying is that the timeline is coming to an end. As God has been pouring out His wrath through the breaking of the seal, through the blowing of the trumpets, and now through the pouring out of these bowls, as He's been pouring out His wrath on those who have rejected them, on those who have not just rejected Him, but made Him their enemy, it is coming to an end. The second coming of Christ is on hand. It's about to happen. Jesus is about to step back. He's about to bring absolute victory. He's about to throw the enemy into the pit and have that thousand-year millennial reign, and we're moving towards the end. So when it says that the wrath of God is finished, or um, the wrath of God yeah, is finished, it just means that uh, we're getting to this end point. We're getting to this spot where Christ returns. And then in verse 2, we see as we get to the end, it says, "...and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire." Now that sea of glass that's mingled with fire, there are a couple different um, spots, like in Exodus and in Ezekiel chapter one, verse twenty-two, where in Ezekiel uh, Ezekiel has a vision of heaven, and it says this in one twenty-two. It says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And so, there's this, you see it in um, Exodus as well, and a couple of uh, other moments where we see kind of glimpses into heaven, that before the throne of God, there's this kind of Crystal sea, there's this expanse of crystal or clear glass. And so when it says that these people are uh, before this glass, or what he, he sees uh, appear to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, it just lets us know that they are standing before the throne of God. And it says, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So who are those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name? These are those that within that seven-year tribulation period, these are those who have sacrificed their lives. These are those who have been martyred for their faith. If you remember, as we saw this kind of parentheses in these last several chapters, we saw how the beast was going to make war with God's children. He was going to; his whole goal was to destroy God's children. And so, uh, those who are uh, here during this time, remember, there's two views. This is either uh, the church was never raptured; the church is here to the end, or this is the uh, the church has been raptured. These are those who have been saved during this time. Whichever view you want to take. The truth remains that during those times, those who are Christians, the enemy, the, uh, the Antichrist, will make them his enemies, and he will make war with them, and he will take out as many as he possibly can. And these are those that are standing before the throne. They are standing there with these harps ready to praise God. And it's interesting that it says, "...and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name." Now remember, we were told that those who um, worship God would not take uh, the mark of the beast on their their right hand or on their forehead. That those who took that, that was a sign of, of worshiping the beast. And so what happens is the beast, the Antichrist... Thinks that because he is martyring or 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 killing all of these saints, all of these believers, that he is victorious, that he is conquering God, that he is conquering God's people. But what God says here in His Word is that these who were martyred, these who stood firm, these who stood the test, these who said Jesus Christ is more important than me, Jesus Christ is more important than whatever tribulations come out of this. Jesus Christ is more important than me being an enemy of the state. Jesus Christ is more important. Those who conquered, those who were killed for their faith, that's what conquering is. That's what victory is. It's not having an easy life. It's not having everything work out for you. It's not being blessed materially that conquering and victory in Christ comes when we stand firm with Him no matter what comes our way. And so for the end times, this is when they are uh, their lives, are taken because they love Jesus. But for us, to conquer doesn't mean that life is easy. To conquer in Christ doesn't mean that everything works out for us. To have victory in Christ doesn't mean that we're on this kind of yellow brick road that everything just goes the right way. To have victory and conquering in Christ means that we stand firm when life gets hard. That we stand firm when life is difficult. That we continue to trust Christ. That we continue to stay faithful to Him even when Life is throwing us curveballs that we're not anywhere near ready for. That's what it means to conquer, excuse me, not to have an easy life, not to be blessed financially or physically or with health, but conquering comes when we stand firm. Two of my favorite stories that show this are the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the story of Daniel and the lion's den. They're both found in the book of Daniel, but both. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel find themselves in situations where they are told to worship something or someone other than God... Or face the penalty. Be thrown into the fiery furnace or be thrown into the lion's den. And both times they say, my God is worthy. My God is greater. No matter what comes at me, I understand that there is no one stronger or greater than my God. And so they are conquerors. They are victorious. Not because life got easy for them or life worked out for them. But they are conquerors and victorious because when hardship came their way, they stood firm with victory. God. So it'll be the same thing at the end times. And it says that he sees them and they're singing a song. Verse 3 it says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For, you are, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So what is this the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? The song of Moses is in Exodus 15. After the Israelites have come through the Red Sea and God has brought the sea back down over Pharaoh and his armies, Moses sings this song in Exodus 15. I think it's the first 18 verses. He sings this song praising God for God's victory, praising God for God's faithfulness, praising God that God continually watched over the Israelites, praising God that He brought them through the hardship, He brought them out of slavery. He brought them through trial, and He brought them to the promised land, or He was bringing them to the promised land that He had for them. In the same way, this song of the Lamb, it's praising God, it's praising Christ, His superiority over the nations, His greatness over everybody else, that He deserves respect, He deserves honor, He deserves glory, and He deserves worship. Both of these are songs of victory. They're songs of praising God for His faithfulness, praising God for what He has brought us through, and praising God that He has brought us to the end where He will fulfill His promises. And so... This kind of sets the stage for us that these uh, believers who have been martyred for their faith are standing there before God, praising Him for the victory that He is about to bring. Praising Him for the victory that for them He's already brought because they get to be in heaven with Him. And praising God, knowing that He's about to uh, vanquish the enemy, that He's about to prove Himself victorious and superior over all, and he is about to establish his kingdom. So this is a song of praise, of worship, of adoration for God because he is victorious. And then in verse 5 it says, After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with the golden sashes around their chest. The fact that they were coming from the sanctuary, the fact that they had these bright robes, shows that this is from God, that they are coming with the approval of God. Verse 7, it says, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And then verse 8 is where I want us to stop and look for a second. And it says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, there's a couple of places in Scripture where we kind of see something that looks like this. Where God's glory kind of sets down in this powerful way so much that that people can't even enter into the temple. We see it once in uh, in Exodus chapter 40, um, when Moses sets up the tabernacle, or Moses and the Israelites set up the tabernacle, uh, and God's presence sets down in such a way that it says that Moses cannot even enter into the tabernacle. Then we see it in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, um, once the... Um, they've built uh, the, the Solomon's temple. They have brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 says this. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So, in that story, and then in the other story with Moses, you have this picture where the temple is set up. The temple is dedicated to God. And God sets down in this Such a powerful way, physically in such a powerful way, that people cannot even enter into the temple. They cannot enter into the tent of meeting because God's power has set down in such an incredibly powerful way. They cannot even enter. It's not even possible. And here we have the same thing. We have this heavenly sanctuary filled with smoke because of the glory of God and from His power. And no one can enter until these plagues have been poured out. Now... A lot of times, when we think about God, we kind of focus in on what we consider the the, the positive things, right—the good things. We focus on His love, on His grace, on His kindness, on His gentleness, and that's good. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, wrong with that. We should. But if we're going to have a full picture of God, then we also have to understand that God is a God of wrath, meaning God hates all sin. And because God is righteous and holy, and because God is a God of wrath and He is just and He is righteous, God has to judge sin, meaning He has to pour out a a just hostility, His just hatred, towards sin and towards those who commit that sin unless they have repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And so in those Old Testament stories where we have the the sanctuary or the temple being filled with the glory of God so that people can't even enter at such a spiritually powerful moment, we think of those as kind of being wrapped around uh, worship. That This is uh, the people worshiping God. God has established a place for them to worship, to come and praise Him. He's established this moment, this time time for them to come and exalt Him and focus Him and love Him and serve Him. And yet in the exact same way, God's glory fills this temple so that no one can enter into it, but it's not from His love and it's not from His grace, it's from His wrath. It's from His wrath being poured out on those who have rejected Him once the time is up. And so when we have a picture of God, we want to kind of have a a full-fledged picture that yes, God is a God of love and grace. And we tell as many people about God and His grace as we possibly can. Because if we don't, and if people die without knowing Him, then God is also a God of wrath. And that God of wrath is also just as glorified and just as awesome and just as powerful and just as worthy of worship as the God of grace and love and mercy because they are the exact same person, the exact same God. And so we seek to see people come to know Christ because we understand without God's grace and without God's love and without God's mercy all we have is God's wrath. And while God deserves to be praised for all that He is, to be in the To be in the hands of a wrathful God is a terrifying, terrifying proposition. And the only way we escape that wrath of God is through the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, let's move to chapter 16. Now, chapter 16, we're just going to kind of take a little step by step because um, it just kind of goes quickly. They begin to pour out their bowls of wrath So verses 1 and 2 says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So the first bowl of wrath that is poured out, people... Who, who are not Christians, remember, just like the trumpets, as these bowls of wrath are poured out, Christians are spared from this. Christians are kind of given a free pass. Jesus Christ has taken our wrath. Jesus Christ has become our propitiation. He has satisfied God's wrath towards our sin. So as these trumpets are blown, as these bowls of wrath are poured out, they are um, they miss Christians. Christians do not suffer this if they are still on the earth. The only ones who suffer this, as it says, are those who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. So at this point, you basically have two groups of people. You've got Christians, and you've got those who bear the mark of the beast. Those who are not Christians, those who have bought into the lies of the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and the serpent. And so, uh, just like in the Old Testament with the, um, the Israelites when they were in Egypt, when Moses came to uh, lead them out, and Pharaoh said no, and all these plagues kept coming down, the people of, uh, of Israel were protected from those plagues. And so this first plague that is poured out, with the bowl of God's wrath, it is um, painful sores pop up over all of these people. In fact, the sixth plague uh, in the book of Exodus is painful boils and sores popping up on the Egyptians. I don't know if there's a a correlation here. I don't know if it's something that I just haven't figured out. But there's a lot in common with the Exodus and the book of Revelation. And so, maybe one day I'll put it all together. But right now, there's just a shadow there that I see. But but there's a a strong connection between the Exodus and Revelation. And we'll continue to see it in verses 3 and 4. In the second and third bowls being poured out, it says this, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So just like the, um, the second plague, or the first plague in Exodus, the waters is turned to blood, and as the water is turned to blood, all that is in the oceans, all that is in the seas, all that is in the rivers, it dies. Now, when we saw the blowing of the trumpets, we saw that parts of the water were, uh, were turned to blood, and the, the, the sea life that was in there was killed. Uh, we've seen, uh, I believe it was a third of the oceans, or a third of the water on the earth was contaminated, contaminated in this. Uh, We saw parts of the water be contaminated when uh, it was struck by that wormwood and became bitter and it made people sick and it made people die. Well, here's we get to the end. All of the water on all of the earth, in all of the seas and all the oceans and all the streams and all of the rivers is turned to blood. And so, It's this picture of God's sovereignty, of God's power, of God's strength over the things that give life. For us to continue to live, we need water. We need that for sustenance. We need that uh, to continue on. And God wipes it out, declaring to His enemies, I am stronger than you, I am greater than you, I am bigger than you. And what we'll see in a second is that the people continue it. Well... I'll jump ahead in verse. At the end of verse nine, and the end of verse eleven, it says that the people did not repent and give him glory. They did not repent of their deeds. The fact that they are not repenting shows us that there is still even the slightest bit of grace, but their hearts, as we've seen several chapters ago, their hearts have become so hard that there is a refusal to repent. No matter what God is doing, no matter how God is showing them His strength and His power. Remember, as all of this stuff is happening to them, the Christians are over here, they don't have the sores. Somehow they're going to have water to drink. When we look at the darkness in a second, just like in the book of Exodus, They're going to have light where they're at. And yet the people, instead of seeing God's grace shown to His children and saying, maybe that's what I need. Maybe that's where I need to be. Instead, they harden their hearts. And instead of turning to Him in repentance, they stand firm in their hatred and their hostility of God, calling down His wrath upon themselves. All right, let's look at verses 5 through 7 because we see this... um, we have this little aside here after these waters are turned. Kind of a proclamation of God's justice. And it says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say. So this is the angel that just poured out the bowl. It says, Just, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And, it, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. If you remember the altar, those are those who have been martyred. We saw that several chapters ago. Those are the ones before the altar crying out for God's justice, crying out for God to to justify their suffering and their sacrifice for Him. And we have this moment that that is real, that is true, but it maybe not doesn't seem like it's the most gracious. It says, basically it says, God, you are just. God, they've killed your holy ones. They've killed your children. They've killed those who have trusted in you. They've shed their blood. So blood is what they deserve. Give them what they deserve. Now, when we think about God and we think about God's grace... We all understand that we all deserve judgment. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve justice. That's what we deserve. Because we are sinners, we deserve for God to say, you have been wrong, you've broken my law, you are guilty, you deserve punishment. That's what we all deserve. But we also understand that in Christ, God took all that we deserve and placed it on Jesus Christ. And that's what makes grace so awesome. That's what makes grace so great. That's what makes the gospel so great is that Jesus Christ took what we deserve so that we get what we can never earn or what we can never do or get on our own. And yet here there's this proclamation where God's justice is being declared. God's justice is being magnified. And it says, this is what they deserve. And it is. It is what they deserve. It's what all of us deserve. And yet because of the hardness of their heart, instead of being at a moment to receive God's grace, they are receiving God's justice. Simply meaning they are simply getting what they deserve. And once again, that is a horrifying thought that we would get what we deserve because what we deserve is hell and what we deserve is judgment and what we deserve is justice and here we see at the end, because people's hearts have become so hard against God, that instead of receiving the gift that God offers, they only get what they deserve. And that is a, that is a terrible, terrifying thought. Because none of us want what we deserve. We want God's grace. And yet here, their hearts are so hard, they don't even get that. Verses eight and nine it says the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the names of God, or the cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. So, if you remember when the trumpets were blown, when I believe it was the fifth trumpet that was blown to the sixth trumpet. Um, it talked about how a third of the, uh, the stars went dark. A third of the sun went dark. That, that kind of created this, this kind of gloominess and grayness over the earth. Where here just the opposite happens and God pumps up the heat on the sun so that B people who are in the sun are basically getting the the, the worst sunburn of their life and there's nothing to stop it. And they just go outside and they get this scorching heat that burns their skin. And it says instead of repenting, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the Antichrist, we talked about how the serpent or Satan, his whole plan, his whole game plan is he wanted to be like God. And so he rises up this false... Jesus, this false Christ, this antichrist, and He goes along with the false prophet and get people to believe in Him. They perform a couple of miracles, they tell a couple of lies, and all of a sudden, uh, so much of creation, so much of the world, so much of people are just buying into what they are selling, buying into what they are saying, and they begin to worship Him as their Messiah, as their God, as their Savior. And yet here when they come face to face with the real God, they have so bought into the lies of their false God, the lies of their false Christ, that when God once again shows His power, they instead of turning to Him, they curse His name and they reject Him because they have... They've chosen their Savior. They've chosen their God. And it is the beast. It is the serpent. It is the false prophet. It is this Antichrist empowered by Satan. They have chosen their God. And so they have turned their backs on the one true God. And as we'll see in a second, they joined the Antichrist to make war with him. So verses 10 and 11, it says this. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged in the darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So just like the sixth plague of the Exodus, the, final, the next to final plague, the last plague was the, the death of the firstborn. But the one before that was darkness. And here we have the same thing. There's this darkness and people are... In anguish and in pain, it says gnawing their own tongues that there's so much just heaviness and pain and frustration that comes with this. But once again, instead of repenting, they curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And the ironic thing is this, or about this, is they're cursing God because of their pain and sores. Basically saying, God, this is your fault. The reason why this is happening, it's all because of you. I don't deserve this. When in reality, God is saying, We go back up to verse uh, 6. It says, This is what they deserve. They are getting what they deserve. And yet, once again, their hearts are so hardened, their eyes are so blinded by this false God and this false Christ that instead of taking this as a moment to realize, Yes, this is what I deserve. Maybe God will be gracious to me. Instead, they say, No, God, you're wrong. You're the bad guy in this. I don't deserve this. And they continue to curse his name and refuse To repent. When people, whether it's at the end time or now, buy into false falsehoods, when they buy into the lie, whether it's a false religion, whether it's a culture that denies God's grace and God's sovereignty, whether it's a culture that loves sin and embraces sin, when people buy into sin and they buy into the lie, sometimes it is so hard to get the truth through that hard-heartedness. Yes, God is bigger. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God can do that. But as we move to the end, we get to a point where hearts are so hard. That no matter what God is doing, people have no desire for Him. And then we get the sixth angel. It says the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. These would be demonic spirits. It says for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the day of um, on the day of the God Almighty. So basically, he says um, as this river drives up uh, the 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 beast, the serpent, and the false prophet, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet start to gather their army. They start to gather their army. They go to all the kings and they start to get people fully on their side so that they can. Have a battle against who? The battle of the great day of God the Almighty. And then if you have red letters in your Bible, Jesus is declaring this. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, who stays connected to Christ, stays firm to Christ, devoted to Him, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so what we have here is this uh, sixth bowl is poured out is the enemy gathers all of his forces and he gets ready for a battle, a battle against against those who are, who are uh, faithful to Christ. He gets ready to battle Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to come back like a thief in the night. I'm about to come. The time is almost here. Be ready. Be prepared. And I'm going to come. And there's going to be this great battle, this battle of Armageddon, this battle where it told us back in uh, chapter 14 uh, that the, using figurative language, it talks about how the blood will flow as high as a horse's brow, Bridal for, uh, I want to say around 60 miles. I could be a little bit off on that. Um, 184 miles. I'm sorry, I was off on that. 184 miles, just under 200 miles. That it's going to be such a violent and bloody battle until Christ comes back and Christ is victorious. Christ at that second coming comes back to conquer the enemy and to set up his kingdom for we have a thousand year reign, then he sets it up for eternity. Then we have the seventh bowl. Verse 17, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. That reminds us of Jesus Christ on the cross, saying, It is finished. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was the earthquake. Same thing happened when Jesus Christ died and said, In his finished, there was an earthquake that happened after his death. And it said, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. Basically, God pours out a lot on them. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, fell. From, each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Right before Christ comes back at this battle, there's this great earthquake that is a... The way this describes it, this is a global earthquake that destroys mountains, that, that moves sea or moves islands, that shifts uh, the tectonic plates, that shifts uh, the nations, kind of like how um, the flood came originally and shifted the world as we know it. Now as Christ comes back, there's another shifting through this earthquake. And all of this, as God is pouring out His wrath, The fact that people are not repenting tells us that God would allow for repentance. Tells us that God would allow for grace. But people's hearts have become so hard in their hostility, in their hatred for God, in their selfishness, in the worship of this false God, that they have no desire to turn to Him. No desire to recognize Him. And the only thing they do towards Him is curse His name and blame Him for their problems and blame Him for their faults. Now, once again, this is the end, and we see that, and we know that that is coming. But at the same time, there are people in our lives now who who mirror this. Maybe not to this extreme, maybe not to this extent but people who blame God for their problems, people who, whose hearts are so hardened towards God because of any number of reasons. And maybe they're, they're, they're good reasons, maybe they're not good reasons, but whatever the reasons, they have hardened their heart towards God. They have embittered their hearts towards God. And the sad and ironic thing about that is the very thing that God has to offer them, grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and adoption, The very thing that would alleviate their pain, the very thing that would alleviate their frustration, the very thing that would give them hope instead of agony, they have rejected and are rejecting by hardening their hearts. And the only thing that can soften that heart is God being at work. The only thing that can soften that heart is by them being told by those who love them that God loves them. The only thing that softens that heart is the Holy Spirit working through His Word and working through His church and His people to soften those hearts until that soil of that heart is ready to receive God's Word and salvation occurs. I believe our encouragement for this is twofold. One, yes, we have a victory that is ours in Christ. But at the same time, we have to keep our eyes open for those who do not know Christ and for those whose hearts are being hardened, praying and begging God to soften their hearts, loving them and showing them God's love to soften their hearts. Because it should be our hope and it should be our desire that no one gets what they deserve. Because when we get what we deserve, this is what we get. We get the plagues, we get the the boils, we get the sun, we get the, the hundred pound rocks falling on people. We get pain and suffering and justice and judgment. That's what we get when we get what we deserve. We shouldn't want that for ourselves. We shouldn't want that for anyone else. What we should want for everybody is God's grace. Because God's grace takes everything that we deserve and it puts it on Jesus. It takes all that Jesus was, how God saw him as being perfect and holy and sinless, and He puts it on us. And though even though we still mess up, God views us and sees us through the lens of His Son. And He sees us as pure and holy. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great Jesus is. So we look at the end times. We always have to remember, yes, victory is coming. But for those who don't know Jesus, they're only going to get what they deserve. And that is a terrifying thought. And that should motivate us to love, to pray for, to share the gospel with, to invite people to church, anyone who doesn't know Jesus, hoping, begging, praying that their hearts would not be hardened so that they do not get what they deserve, but instead they can receive God's grace. Let's pray to close out. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you have given us. Father God, I pray that as we have studied Your Word, Father God, yes, it is, it's neat to see what's coming. It's neat to see the promises that You've made. It's neat to know that we are victorious in You. And though there might be suffering, though there might be struggling along the way, God, what we have in You, the promises that we have in You, far outweigh everything that we might suffer. And so, Father God, as we look at the victory, yes, let us praise You From the top of our lungs and the bottom of our hearts for who you are and what you've done. But Father God, also remind us, God, that there are a lot of people out there who don't yet know you. And when they die, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's at the end times, whenever that happens to be, Father God, they're only going to get what they deserve. And Father God, none of us should want that. Burden our hearts for the loss. To pray, to share, to invite, to love. God, hoping and begging to see you change them and save them and draw them to yourself. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.